0: First Peter, you know what struck me is uh, we, as we go to Second Peter next week. First Peter is all about um, comfort for the suffering. Second Peter is red hot, it's full of prophecy, warning of uh, coming judgment. But, but more than that, it's Peter's final letter the final one. Paul, and he also knows when he writes it and he tells us, I'm about to go to heaven. He knows he's about to go. And you know, Paul had his second Timothy. He wrote second Timothy and he said in there, I know I'm about to go. So both Paul and Peter had a sense of when their last day was coming. And yet they wrote with boldness, with joy, with excitement, and so it's neat to see this pattern. But second Peter, let me tell you, it's going to cook. It's going to cook. Amen. So tonight, let's finish First Peter. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your word with us tonight, Lord. We pray that you will open this scripture, this last part of First Peter five, open these words to us, for they are your words. It's from you, Lord. This is the Word of God, and we receive it as such, and we thank you for it. I pray for those that are watching from home, that you will bless them in their house, their office, maybe even in their car, bless them, and may the Spirit of God visit them, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. All right, let's put on the screen uh, this last part of 1 Peter 5. We're just going to zip through it, read it real quick. And uh, if you want to read along, that's fine, but I'm going I'm to read out loud. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. There, be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may eat alive. What does it say to do? Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now he's going to tell us a couple of practical things. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Last verse, she who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you and so does Mark my son I don't know who the she is but I know who the Mark is amen the one that wrote the gospel of Mark thank you Lord amen turn to your neighbor and say perk up and listen this is going to be good tonight in the word of God good I just love the word of God amen now Last time, we we finished with looking at Peter's words on humility. We saw that the way up in God's kingdom is down into servanthood. The way up is down in humility. And in the second half of verse 5, humility is still on the apostles' mind. So let's look at the second half of 5. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, let's let's uh, look at these quickly. The, the phrase clothed with humility means literally to gird yourself. Now, from what I can see, everybody here got dressed before they came to church. We're very thankful that you did. Amen. But clothing yourself with humility is, is the same idea as getting dressed. You clothe yourself with it. It's a choice. You know, this is one of Paul's favorite little terms put on Jesus, put on love, Uh, put off the old man. It's the same idea. By decision, by faith, we clothe ourselves in humility. You decide you're going to be humble. You humble yourself. I'd rather humble myself any old day than God have to do it for me. Amen? So humility is something we put on and we wear, We're to wear it around the house, to the store, to church, to work. We're to wear humility. Nobody wore humility like Jesus. By the time he was 12, he fully knew who he was and who his father was. Okay, changed mics. Yet he submitted to his human mother. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus, God in flesh, submitted to his human mother. The Bible says he was subject to them. Peter warns that God literally resists the proud. Think about that. Resist means to square off against, uh, to oppose, to push away, to keep somebody at arm's length. Now notice what it says, that God keeps you at arm's length when you're walking in pride. Pride was the first sin to ever stay in God's universe. And it is, it is. I believe, pride is the father of all other sins. Because we never sin but what there's some pride involved. Okay? I know better than God. I don't need God. I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. There's a pride factor involved. And God literally squares off against and opposes us, keeping us at arm's length when we're walking in pride. So humble yourself. Humble yourself. In this day of intense spiritual warfare and our great need of God's grace, how many of you need some grace tonight? I think I have prayed for grace and mercy more in the last, I don't know, six months or so. Don't ask me why. I've just prayed for it a lot. Then I have ever that I can remember so intensely. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Then we might obtain what? Mercy. And find what? Grace to help us in the hour of need, Hebrews says. Now, the word humble is simply to be God-reliant rather than self-reliant. That's humility. I'm God-reliant. I'm leaning on God. I'm trusting God. I'm looking to God. God graces the God-reliant with favor. The word grace means near you to share his benefits with you. He's near you and wants to share his benefits with you. And he does that when you're humble. Amen? I'm God-reliant. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I realize I can't do this thing without him. Who in the world can make it out there in this culture without Christ? I don't know how people do it. No wonder they're drinking it away, smoking it away, snorting it away, popping the pills to numb it away. No wonder. But I don't need any of that. You don't need any of that. Because we've got, through Jesus, an inside track to the strength of God. Amen? Now, he's going to tell us about humility's rewards in verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Amen. Everybody say, God exalts. Does he? Yes, he does. But who's he exalt? The humble. So this verse reminds us again, the way up in God's kingdom is down. The world says, promote yourself. Scratch and claw your way to the top. Force your way into success. Make everybody get out of your way. You're the man. You're the woman. Do it. Take the world by storm. But God says, humble yourself because I'm watching. And when I see you humble yourself, then I'm going to promote you. And when I promote you, nobody can take you down. See, if you get you there, you've got to keep you there. right? But if God puts you there, if God puts you there, then God keeps you there. Amen. (laughs) Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Yeah, the humble Christian becomes the strong, victorious Christian. James says, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So now, James is chiming in with the same idea. Humble yourself, especially when you're in spiritual warfare. Humble yourself before God, and that's what positions you to win in a spiritual battle. You're full of pride. Here's what you say to yourself I can handle this. I can think my way out of this, or maneuver my way out of this, or finagle my way out of this somehow. I will come to a conclusion, I'll find an answer. I will be the solution. But you can't do that against the devil. So he says, when you're in spiritual warfare, immediately, first thing, humble yourself. God, please help me. God, strengthen me. God, be with me. God, grace me. God, give me mercy. Give me mercy, God. Don't let me fight this alone. This is bigger than me, but it's not bigger than you. Amen. So humility puts me in a position of strength and victory. So humble yourself. I think the easiest way to humble yourself is tell the truth about yourself. Just look in the mirror and tell the truth. You're not all that in a bag of chips. Amen? No, you're not. Look in the mirror. Just be honest. Here's what honesty says. If he hadn't saved me, I'd have been toast. If he hadn't changed me, I'd still be the wicked old, Dude or dudette that I was. If God hadn't done what He's what He had, what He's done in me, where would I be? Tell the truth about yourself. Paul did. He said, "I am what I am by the grace of God." I, I am what I. Let's try that together. I am what I am by the grace of God. Yeah, that's the easiest way I know to humble yourself just be honest about yourself just be honest whatever good thing is in me is in me because of him amen if i love better than i did last year it's because of him if i have any patience it's because he's worked it in me if if i have if i've if i've been delivered from all the sin and the 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 mess that I was in, it wasn't by my doing, it wasn't rehabilitation, it wasn't turning over a new leaf, it wasn't a New Year's resolution, Resolution. it wasn't a self-help thing. No, it was the grace, I am what I am by the grace of God. And from that position of humility, Peter says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The word care... You you probably know what it is. It's anxiety. Cast all your anxiety on him. All of your worries are to be cast upon the Lord. Not some of them. Not every once in a while. Uh, but every day, cast your cares upon the Lord. That means he's got them, you don't. There are things, folks, God never intended for us to carry. All right? Come unto me, all you that labor in our heavy-laden with what? With cares, with worries, with fears, with struggles, with doubts. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All right? So cast all your cares upon him. Most of us do it this way, like we fish. You fish, and he goes way out there. You cast that bait. And then immediately you start reeling it back in. And that's the way a lot of us cast cares onto the Lord. We cast it. Oh, yeah, I cast it on you, Lord. But in 10 minutes, we're doing this. And we're bringing it back in. And we're worried about it all over again. No, here I literally do this sometimes in my prayer. I literally do this. It's a little devotion in motion thing. I literally play like I'm cutting the line. I cast it onto the Lord. And I say, Lord, I cut the line. I'm not reeling it back in. Are you with me? I'm not going to reel it back in. It's yours, Lord. And His great big nail scarred hands take it, and I have peace instead of worry and anxiety. It's interesting. The word care is used two times in this verse. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Uh, The first time care is used, it's in the plural. Meaning we're to cast our many and varied anxieties onto the Lord. Cast your multiple plural cares. But the second time it's used, he cares, it means this. Someone have any interest in you. Somebody who has an interest in you. Cast all of your multiple cares because they're usually many. But then, Why? And how do you know he takes them? Because he cares. He has an interest in you. He's interested in you. I want you to say he's interested in me. Now, you may feel insignificant out there. You may feel like nobody knows you're alive on the planet. But I want you to know this word, care, the second care in that verse, means we have many cares, but he has only one. And it's you. It's you. He, let's say together, he cares for me. He cares for me. You're his one and only care, focus, interest. Peter now turns his focus to the enemy, our enemy, the devil. Verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Now, I want you to notice something. He's not just an adversary. He's your adversary. Isn't that what he says? Your adversary, the devil. Because we're engaged in a spiritual conflict, not once a week or not every once in a while, but every single day, we're in a spiritual battle, are we not? Is there anybody in here who doesn't have a battle during the day? I mean, come on. We're in a spiritual battle every day. We're attacked every day. We're having to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. So he gives us instruction here. He says, because you're engaged in a spiritual conflict until the day that we go home to heaven, when thank God, then there's no more devil, no more flesh, no more temptation. No more nothing. Uh, we're to be sober minded. And that literally means not intoxicated. I just, that's just what it means. We're to have presence of mind. We're to have our wits about us. All right? Be sober. Don't be uh, intoxicated in any way. I don't like anything that takes away my clarity of thought. Not anything. I want to be able to spot the devil a mile away if he's coming my way. I don't want to be numb, numbed by anything. Now, that's just my choice, all right? It's my choice. I don't want anything that's going to numb me, intoxicate me, put me in any kind of a stupor, put a dull edge on my alertness, my discernment. I don't want it. So don't be intoxicated. Intoxicated have your mind about you your wits about you and vigilant he said also be vigilant that means to stay awake not physically we got to sleep but it means to be spiritually alert awake are you awake tonight are you awake are you spiritually alert do you know what time it is in our culture do you know what do you know what time it is on the prophetic timetable do you know what time it is spiritually in god's eyes it is the last days, Christ is at the door. Do you know what time it is we're 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 in a battle, and Jesus said when you see all these things coming to pass, know that my return is near, even at the door. So we're to be alert, not taken off guard, not shocked or surprised. We're to be alert. why? because the devil's on the prowl. (laughs) He's looking for lunch. He's looking for dinner. I want you to notice the word Peter uses for adversary literally means accuser, like a prosecuting attorney. Uh, Satan acts like an adversary in a lawsuit against you. He acts like an opponent's prosecutor in a lawsuit. He brings a case against you. And one of the things about being alert is recognizing if that battle in your mind where you're all down on yourself, beating yourself up, uh, having memories of your past failures brought up to you, how often do we stop to think that maybe that has another source? And it's the enemy building a case against us in our own mind. You ever caught the devil doing that? You no good, low-down, former, terrible sinner. What are you doing thinking God can use you? What are you doing going to church all the time and acting all holy? If only they knew what I know. And he comes against you in your mind till so before you know it, you're walking around with tuck head. You know what tuck head is? You're staring at the ground, your shoulders are slumped, you're all down on yourself. Let me tell you, God will never do that to you. No, he'll never do that to you. What does it say? He's my glory and the lifter of my head. Amen? He doesn't want you to walk around in pride, but he does want you to be confident in what the blood of Jesus has done in washing away your sin. he condemns you he accuses you he slanders you he undermines you in the theater of your mind and sometimes he'll use others to do it and sometimes he'll use church folks to do it if you've been in church any time over a month that is no shock to you he calls satan a roaring lion literally means to howl he wants us to see the, the predatory nature of the devil he howls and roars like a lion on the hunt. He walks about. That paints a graphic picture of Satan's restless energy. Remember when he uh, went before God in Job's day? And God said to the devil, where are you, where are you been? He said, going to and fro throughout the earth. And that shows his restless energy. When the devil's going to and fro in the earth, what's he doing? He's on the hunt. He's not passively sitting in the shadows watching the world pass by. He's pacing back and forth, always searching for an unsuspecting victim. That's the devil. I'm not afraid of him, but I'm I'm smart to his game. I'm wise to him. I'm not afraid of him, but I don't take it for granted. I don't make fun of him. I'm aware that he is my adversary, my adversary, your adversary. He's not playing games and neither can we. Spiritual warfare is for keeps, everybody. Peter next tells us how to respond to Satan's attacks. You want to know how to beat him? He says here, verse 9, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by all of your brethren throughout the world, starting with your own local church. You're not alone in your battle. All Christians are experiencing warfare and and trouble from the devil. He's attacking all Christian marriages, all Christian homes, all Christian hearts and minds. He's attacking them all. He said, so you resist him. We're to resist the evil one, not in our own strength, but by yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And James chimes in with the same idea. Listen to James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So there's your Humility. And then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he uses the same word, resist. This, this word from the Greek is so inter- interesting. So I'm just going to tell you what it is. It's anthistamy. Anthistamy. Now let me ask you, do you recognize an English word in there? Anthistamy? Antihistamine. Okay? So our medical community in uh, probably a couple of centuries ago or so, when they came, whenever they came up with antihistamines, uh, they borrowed from this Greek word, anthistamine. So let me show you what it means. And let me explain this. Histamine, okay, antihistamine. Histamine is the substance in our bodies that plays a major role in an allergic reaction, causing the runny nose, the sneezing, the coughing. Um, if you're in Texas, I guarantee you, you're dealing with histamine, okay? So an antihistamine is a drug that resists and inhibits the effects of histamine. It pushes it back so that we can breathe, stop coughing, the watery eyes stop, because the histamine is being resisted by an antihistamine. So, when we resist the devil in Jesus' name, it's like a spiritual antihistamine, all right, that blocks the devil's progress and sends him running. Resist the devil, anthistamine, resist the devil, and he will run from you. He will run from the name of Jesus. He will run. But here's the thing here's the key, everybody you got to first submit to God. If you're not submitted to God, you can rebuke the devil all day long. It won't do you any good. We've got to be submitted to God first. Are you submitted to God? So when we're under attack, the very first thing we need to ask ourselves is this. Is he attacking your marriage? Is he attacking your kids? Is he attacking your money? Is he attacking your peace? Is he attacking? Are you experiencing a warfare? Here's the first thing you've got to ask yourself, because you're in a battle. You're going to have to fight or just take it. I'm not going to let the devil bully me around. I'm going to fight him. I'm going to resist him. But the first thing is, am I submitted to God? Am I in obedience to God in any way in every way I know? Is there any area in my life where he's been prodding me, nudging me, either by his spirit or by his word, to do something, to deal with something? and and i haven't done it is there anything like that because if i'm not submitted to god i can't win so there's a there's a there is a process in spiritual warfare you know i hear people commanding the devil to this that and the other you know you need demons cast out of you and all this stuff going around about christians Needing deliverance every other week. And I'm going to tell you something if you're submitted to God, that's what deals with the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil, and he runs from you, he flees from you. So the devil's looking for Christians who aren't submitted to God, and he can wreak havoc. But what a powerful thing it is when we submit to God and resist the devil. He, he runs. I love the idea of Satan running away from me because of Jesus in me. Running away from the Jesus in me. Amen. Everybody say, he'll flee from me. Now, Peter goes next into God's grace, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ after you have suffered a while. Now, underline or circle that word suffer, because here's Peter returning to his original subject in, in chapter one, suffered after you have suffered a while. What happens after you have suffered a while? God perfects you, establishes you, strengthens you, and settles you. After what? After you have suffered. Wow. So Peter's once again pointing out that God uses suffering. Uh, Isn't it a revelation to anybody here that Christians suffer? And it doesn't mean you don't have enough faith if you're suffering. Nothing wrong with your faith just because you're suffering. Matter of fact, you're going to suffer in some ways you didn't before. The the devil attacking you. Um, uh, Various war types of warfare, uh, temptations, uh, persecutions from the outside world. There are persecutions, and there are are troubles and sufferings we experience as Christians that non-Christians don't. Conversely, there's things we never suffer from that non-Christians do. Amen. Like unrequited guilt, condemnation. No victory over sin, no victory over temptation, all kinds of ways. So here's the thing. After you have suffered a while. Now, so Peter is telling us, and I want you to catch this, church, because this is the gist of 1 Peter, that God uses. He takes what the enemy means for evil, and he turns it for our good. He uses suffering. Now you say, well, if he's going to use suffering to develop me and strengthen me, that's not fair. Why can't he just wave a wand and make me what he wants me to be? Why do I have to go through suffering? Well, that's not mean. I want you to think about those football players on the field. They want the Super Bowl ring. Now, if you want the Super Bowl ring and you're at the beginning of the season, then you know this, they're out on a hot field prior to football season. They want that ring. They want to win. They want the victor's crown. They want to be a winning team and not a losing team. Here's what they do. They get on that hot field. They sweat. They groan. They suffer. All under the demands of the man they hire to make them as good as they can be. He knows this will never happen apart for some grueling workouts, tough discipline, and suffering. Go up to any of them after they've had a a, a hard day of practice on the field in 100 degrees out there in Texas. Ask them, how was today? Suffered. I suffered. That coach is a devil. He's Satan. You know what Tom Landry once said? My job is to get the player. Tom Landry was the greatest coach Dallas Cowboys ever had. I'm sorry. Tom Landry once said, "My job is to get the players to do what they don't want to do, so they can be what they really want to be." Now that is good, because God does the same thing. Made me like Jesus, Lord. God says, "Say that one more time, real good and loud." Made me like Jesus. I want to be just like your son, Lord. God says, "Okay, get ready for a long journey." Get ready for some suffering. Get ready for some trials. Get ready for some hard knocks. Get ready, get ready, get ready. I've often thought to myself, if I could have foreseen when I was 19, what I would go through to get to where I've got, I'm not so sure I would have stepped forward as easily as I did. It takes God A lifetime to make a man or a woman of God. It doesn't happen overnight. Oh no. Peter says there's a process with God. After you have suffered for a while, after you have suffered for a while, He puts limits on it. That's good news. God draws lines in the sand. Where remember Job? He's told the devil, "You can do all these things, but you can't take His life." He drew a line in the sand. And at the end of his suffering, we see a stronger, better Job than the one we find at the beginning. But it took some stuff to get there. So look at what the after-suffering produces. God intends us to be perfect. He said he will perfect you. Well, that the Greek word we translate into perfect is not the same as being perfect. Um, it means to arrange, to set in order to adjust. Now, listen to me, dear saints. Um, we've been through a lot of suffering. America has suffered. Christians have suffered all over America. And our suffering is increasing as persecution increases. We go through many things. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of some of them. Is that what it says? Out of all. But here's what God does with suffering. When it says he's going to perfect you, it means he's going to arrange or set in order or adjust, adjust you. Uh, It's the same Greek word used to describe John mending his net, okay? John's mending the net that was torn. How is it that God uses suffering to mend us, to fix some things? I wish sometimes it didn't take suffering, but he uses it. Commentator John Phillips says, As a tailor uses a needle to make way for the thread, so God uses suffering in our lives to make way for the, for, for the perfecting of our souls. Yeah. Are you hurting tonight? God's going to use it. Are you hurting tonight? I'm not saying God brought it, but I'm saying God's going to use it. Are you hurting tonight? It is God's needle. He's going, to, he's going to weave the thread of his character through that suffering. And somehow or another, he's going to use it to mend in you some things that need mending. Then he says, God uses suffering to establish us. Stay ridzo is the Greek word. It means to make something secure. It's the idea of driving a stake into the ground to hold a tent firmly in place. So, God uses suffering to establish us, to hold us in place. Stay Rizzo, I can almost hear, stay bull in it. Suffering has the effect of making us unmovable in our faith. It plays a part in mending our souls, it establishes us in our walk. And then Peter says it strengthens you. We're strengthened to achieve what God's called us to do. Somehow or another, God uses suffering to do it. And finally, and this is my favorite one of all four, suffering will settle you. I love the word settled. I love being settled. How many of you like being settled? I'm a settling kind of guy. I love being steady, Eddie, settled, settled in my face, settled in my walk. But he says he'll settle you. After you have suffered a while, he'll settle you. It means put you on a firm foundation. Nothing like suffering drives us to the Word of God and to the place of prayer. Amen? Amen. I mean, how many of us really pray hard when we're hurting? What did David say? David said, before I suffered, I did many wrong things. But now, after suffering, I carefully obey everything you say. Amen. Amen. Peter, verse 11, says God's going to get the glory from all your suffering. Uh, Again, John Phillips writes, Suffering is the storm cloud that provides the canvas on which God paints the rainbow. Are you suffering tonight? Emotionally? Physically? Spiritually? Relationally? Are you suffering? Then I want you to see it as something God's using as a chisel as a needle with a thread, as a tool to work for your good. You're going to be what you could never have been as God works on you and works on me. Every day we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen? And faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. Amen. Verse 13, churches in Babylon elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. I don't know who the she is. Well, in this translation, it's translated as church. In the one we read up there, it was she. Whatever. The Mark he mentions is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's the Mark he mentions. And he closes his first letter with an encouragement to walk in love and peace. Let's stand together and we're going to read it. Let's put it up there. I love this. Now, don't obey this literally. We don't need rumors going around. That's the church. They're kissing each other all the time. Don't do that. This, this is something I can guarantee tell you this was a first century thing. This doesn't fly here. Greet one another with a hug of love. Greet one another with a handshake of love let's read the rest. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Isn't that a great letter? Can we give the Lord praise for that? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, I want to just see, are there any questions of what I've gone over from First Peter or something that's been on your mind? Any theological, biblical questions uh at all and i'm going to answer two two are there raise your hand if you have a question you can be seated everybody we're doing great it just now turned eight we're great 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 at eight where is it where are they way over there boy connor god bless you huh (laughs) that's why he's young okay so we're getting a question What's your Bible question?
1: Speaking of young. How old was Peter when he started?
0: Uh, when he started? Yes. He was older than many of the others. I don't know exactly. I would put Peter probably somewhere in his mid to late 30s when Jesus called him. He was the older he was the older guy. I don't know how old he was when he uh, passed. Um or Paul Paul was probably in his 60s, and I'm going to guess Peter was probably in his 60s as well. So they had lived several decades serving Christ, of course, writing. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Peter, 1 and 2 Peter. And, uh, you know, it always blows me away when I read 1 Peter and 2 Peter because here's just a salty, blue-collar fisherman called off the boat. No theological training. No formal education. But he writes two letters that stagger intellectual theologians for the rest of time. He did it by the spirit of God. Amen. So, yeah, so they made it at least to their 60s. Anyone else? Ah, yes, ma'am.
1: Okay, so um, in Genesis, it says that um, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that mm-hmm. every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually like it is now. Yep. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him mm-hmm. um, at his heart. Not only did it repent him, it grieved him. He yep. re- not only did he repent, yep. grieved, you know what I'm saying? And now um, God is omniscient and he already knew that this was yep. going to happen. Okay, so now I've heard some ministers try to explain this. None of it was to my satisfaction. Okay, so Uh-oh. one, one
0: <laughs> no pressure.
1: <laughs> okay, so it one was one one of them was like, it's like an earthly father with their children. You hope that they will do right. That's mm-hmm. what one one of them said. But in Romans eight. 24 says, hope that is seen is not hope for what a man sees. Why do we hope yet? So if God already knew, what would he be hoping that we would do right for? That's
0: it. Okay, that's it. So uh, because people often wonder, how can it say that God regretted or repented? Because God never does wrong. So how can he repent uh, that he did something? Uh, How can he be sorry that he did something if he knew the outcome when he first did it? In other words, when he created Adam, he knew Adam was going to fall. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us in Ephesians and other places that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God, the, the plan of redemption was already hatched, was already decided in the eternal counsels of God before he ever made Adam. So this is one of the mysteries The Bible talks about mysteries. Uh, um, This is one for me. It's a mystery. Uh, God knew yet. God made Adam. Now I believe he, one of the keys here, God made man with a will. He did not want robots. What glory is it? What are you going to get out of somebody loving you or wanting to be with you if you program them to do it? Right? you you got a robot that's been programmed to think you're the greatest thing since peanut butter. And so they're only acting the way you program them. So what what is that? No. God made man with a will. That's why he put the tree in the garden of the knowledge of good and evil because he gave man a choice. You can obey me, or you cannot. But God knew he was not going to do it. So when it says that by the time of Noah, Genesis 6, that every thought was evil, and it repented uh, God that he made man, that is a Hebrew expression for how sin grieved God. Because even though he knew man was going to fall, the sin still grieved him. The, still, the sin still vexed him, hurt him, affected him. And so God wasn't literally, boy, I, I repent. Who's he going to repent to? He's God. God didn't it doesn't mean he repented. It means that the sin was grieving God And that it did grieve him. He was about to judge the entire planet. But it's it's telling us that though God knows the outcome of everything, it doesn't stop him from giving the option to choose him. Like he knew Judas was going to do what Judas did. Jesus knew that Judas was going to do what Judas did. But he picked him anyway. I believe when Jesus picked the twelve, Judas was amongst them. He knew Judas was going to be the one, yet he picked him anyway, and Judas still had a choice and so and he was still judged for his sin, even though we're told that it was in the eternal plan of God that Judas do what he do, do what he did, uh, because Christ was to die on the cross for our sins. so it was in God's plan. Yet Jesus said of Judas, better for you that you'd never been born. So it's not telling us that God literally repented or or regretted that he actually followed through with his plan. It's telling us sin, no matter where it's found, what context it's found in, still grieves God. He was grieved. And I think right now when he looks, he knows that Christ. Is going to return soon. He knows that Christ will put an end to the world the way it is right now. But um, I guarantee you, God is grieved over the condition of our culture and our world right now. I read the news every day. I've stopped reading it so much, but I can't believe what I'm reading. I can't believe the depths to which our country has sunk. And not just our country, but The whole Western civilization and then also the East have just sunk into such depravity and wickedness and evil. I mean, we've got the edge on Sodom right now. Does God look at that and say, I wish I'd never made man? No. He looks at it and it grieves him. It repents him, as in it grieves him. It hurts him. So, Yeah, having known the end from the beginning, um, he knew exactly where man would be at that time, but it doesn't mean it didn't make him sorrowful, because man didn't choose for God, but went his own way. Amen? Amen. Okay. Um, Anyone else? All right, let's stand together. Oh, one more. Way back there. I, I was just
1: uh you know how you was saying about how the how the devil he can be inside our head, like telling us certain things, like how we not, you know, uh worthy. Like, you know, we know there's a uh, evil spirit, right? So, you know, speaking in tongues like a God given gift. I was wondering wondering if like if you could also use your like speaking tongues in your spirit. Like Not just saying it in your head, but, you know, saying it in your spirit without saying it out loud.
0: I'm, did you catch, I'm having a hard time understanding the question.
1: Like, do you have any knowledge on speaking in tongues
0: inside of your spirit, like not saying it out loud? Oh, do you, can you speak in tongues within yourself without saying it? Yes. Yes. Oh, you're, you're probably referring to the voice. Groanings that can't be uttered in Romans. The, the, the Spirit of God causes groanings that cannot be uttered. So they're not uttered, but your spirit inside is praying. At least that's one verse I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, that verse is not about tongues. That's not a tongues about glossolalia. We'll have a glosso talk sometime. But that's not glossolalia. That is um, God's Spirit being grieved in you or moved in you. Uh, And the Bible says that the Spirit of God prays for us, sometimes with groanings that can't be uttered. The Spirit of God prays for us. And that's what that verse is referring to, not us speaking in tongues. If you're speaking in tongues, you got to be speaking in tongues. In other words, the whole idea, glosso, is to speak. Glosso is to speak, so speaking in tongues without saying anything is a it's paradoxical. You can't do it. If it's tongues, you're going to be speaking it. If it's not, you're not. <laughs> but you can't you know if I'm speaking in tongues, and I'll just tell you, I, I have a prayer language I have since I was nineteen, and I pray a lot in a prayer language. Uh, but it's always verbal. I, I can't do it in here without giving vent to it. That's the idea of the word.
1: Uh, what verse did you say that was?
0: It's Romans 8. I, I don't know the exact verse, but it would be Romans 8. All right. and it's Pretty in so. there. Thank you. Okay, you bet. Let's stand, everybody. Well, are you glad you came to the house of God tonight? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Let's sing one chorus, Ronnie, as we go. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord that gave us First Peter. What an incredible letter. Thank you, Lord. Thank how you, Lord.
1: Great, great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will sing how great, how great. Is our God.
0: Now Father, go with us as we leave. Thank you Lord for your presence. Thank you for your goodness. Help us Lord to have a fantastic Mother's Day Sunday. Thank you Lord that maybe some moms are going to get saved. Lord, only you know, but we look to you to do it and we thank you for it. In the mighty name of Jesus, be with us this week. And thank you Lord for this incredible letter that you gave us through Simon Peter, your servant in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you.